Hi everyone and welcome to a new episode of Black Woman's Hour. I don't know which episode this is, I've lost count. Um, everything is falling apart and uh, including my hair. I know I said that we were going to do this experiment and we we're going to wait till my hair became one big dreadlock but I think I think we have to stop now. So next week my hair will probably be different since my daughter told me I look like a monster. So, and we were going to watch my Valentine's flowers die every week, um, but I put them in the bin where the man who gave them to me should be. So they've gone as well. We're making changes. We're making changes. This is, this is the roadmap back to normality that we're doing, okay? So how is everyone? This week I have with me my trusty sidekick, Aisha, how are you doing? Hi, I'm really good, thank you. Yeah, feeling good. How are you feeling? You feeling a bit better now we're on our roadmap to recovery? Or roadmap yes, roadmap to recovery, new life. Yeah, all of that, all good. Roadmap to mutant strains and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have two really, really good guests uh, this week. We have Kyindi Andrews. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not bad at all. Not bad at all. And we have Tashmeen in Akunji. Tashmeen Mukunji. Why am I acting like a white person? Like I can't say names today. Well, that's integration, really, isn't it for you? (laughs) Exactly. How much more British can I be, racist? Stop sending me that hate mail. I can't even say people's names. Okay. So much dedication I give to this country. My alcoholism can't say people's names properly. I'm, you know, I'm English. Right. So, where are we going to go from here? God, it has been um, quite a week. Most people, I did want to ask you, this is one thing I wanted to ask you, because I see you so often, um, I see, well, I don't watch the actual show, I see, but I do see clips of you on Good Morning Britain a lot, being interviewed by Piers Morgan, like, and you're just talking so much sense, and then obviously we follow each other on Twitter, so I see all the nonsense that gets sent to you, like, why, how, I mean, thank you. I don't know to say why, how, or thank you, because you are out there talking sense. They can't, you know, get one over on you, you know, your level of intelligence and your knowledge and stuff. But do you ever get tired? Um, You know, sometimes I do. But then, honestly, I walk down the street randomly and some black guy will come and say, oh, go on, prayer, prof, I saw you on Good Morning Britain. And he just reminded that, like, these are genuinely the conversations that people have. Like, we're yeah. lucky because, I mean, I have sensible conversations about racism all the time. But most people really don't. And they have yeah. to deal with these kind of arguments. And I think they just appreciate someone just making it really clear. <laughs> just I, I honestly, rather you than me, I used to do it quite a lot and I don't do it so much anymore. Um, I don't take it seriously. I, just, I mean, that, don't take it seriously. I mean, I enjoy it. I enjoy winding him up. It's, 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 it's like fun for me. I actually quite enjoy it. So it, it doesn't, yeah. I don't take any of it personally. So it's, it's all good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, uh, yeah. Um, Tasmin, what about you? You get your fair share of, share of hate mail as well. Um, yeah. You're a lawyer. Yes, yeah, but that and death threats, which are slightly less uh, easy to ignore. But um, I'm with Kindy on this. As far as I'm concerned, there's a certain percentage of racists out there. And just because I speak, I make their day very bad. So, um, yeah. so all good, really. Yeah. And, well, I guess because you guys are both really intelligent guys anyway, so you guys really know your stuff. But do you ever get... <laughs> It's like racist argument. It's the same stuff over and over and over again. Do you ever feel like just putting, like, you know, some kind of rebuttal on your header on Twitter and just... <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Just pop up the same conversation. Um, honestly, I always think, when I, before I go on any of these shows, is, is, do I have something sensible to say? And I'll just say it. So I, like, I, sometimes I'm not even answering the questions. I'm just like, I wanted to say Malcolm X today. I wanted to say psychosis or whiteness. No, I just have those things in my head. And as long as I say them, I'm fine. I'm happy. Yeah. You can't, you can't, don't take it. I just don't take it seriously. You just can't. It's, it's not... You guys need to get, you know, um, the Bob Dylan video where he just has the, the cards and you just go on the show and then every time they say a thing, you get your little, you know, that was white supremacy card up and that was, you know, just saves you a lot of breath, saves you a lot of energy. Just, just don't, yeah, don't make it a drinking game because you will die. Because I wrote an article in Telegraph, 40... 40- 40 responses that I get to racism. And I said, every time you get one, do a shot. And they just kept coming back at me, even though they read them in the article. And I was like, yeah. I will get alcohol poisoning. I cannot do this. Yeah. I'll tell you a story about that. I mean, so sometimes you get the occasional one who will call you up and then you actually get through to them. So I had one lady once who um, 
who wrote something racist on my Facebook post. So I clicked on it, looked at her Facebook posts, pictures and things. And, you know, she wasn't a supermodel, right? So I wrote something in reply which simply said, um, why is it that racists are always ugly inside and out, really? Uh, for whatever reasons, that particular statement really sort of got to her. I, I've got a cat that can open doors, sorry. Um, and, um, and, and she rang me up the next day, really. Uh, she got my phone number and she called me and she said, look, I'm, I'm really sorry um, that she was having a bad day, family work and all of this stuff. She was drinking and, um, and she saw something I'd posted uh, about uh, bullying at schools and she, her daughter, um, had been bullied very badly at school and no one did anything about it. And so she took offence that, well, there's this Syrian refugee kid who everyone cares about and her own daughter nobody cared about. So I said to her, look, better you vent out on me, a nobody to you, than you take it out on your own family really, because that will have repercussions for you. And we had a long, long chat, and she eventually invited me over to her. She was a nurse. She invited me over to her, um, her sort of Christmas do at work, and um, she was really apologetic. And I thought, you know what, all, all that rubbish I get, if, if there's one person out there that you can get through to because they have a family and they can educate their own children and the people around them, then it's sort of worth it. Wow, you're so much more um, mature than me. <laughs> I was, no, calling yeah. them ugly does get to them. I do it quite a lot. And then the other one, which I just noticed, was the opposite of what you do. I always go, I'll go and take it out on your family like everyone else. You know what I mean? <laughs> Why should we have to put up with this? You know what I mean? <laughs> so, well, was it your family's night off? Why are you harassing me for? But I will take your kind ways uh, and be more respect. This is, though, that's kind of the Muslim way, isn't it? My friend is shot. Oh. It's just like that is the like you know. I talk to her and her sisters. We're all really, really close and stuff, and they are just much better people than me. I, I, I do try to learn there. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I think it's just when you're dealing with like the average folk. I think we should be kind. They they could change, but when you're dealing with people in power, then that's a position that they've taken. Um, you know, I've got a particular issue with um, Colonel Colonel Kemp. Basically, um, he's he's a, of a particular type. And on Twitter, I won't give him any quarter. Um, he's pretty nasty to me. I'm pretty nasty to him. But he's a guy who presided over the, you know, the, the death of a, very many hundreds of thousands of civilians in Iraq. So it's not yeah. as if he doesn't know. I agree with that, definitely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think um, with what's happened in the last week, uh, the decision with uh, Shamima Begum, um, I think, because you are her lawyer, right, Tasmin? You're her lawyer? No, she's, um, her, her lawyer is Gareth Pierce. I've represented her family, basically. Right, okay then. I think the, we're not going to get into the specifics of the case. I think there's just some main questions that people want to know, and especially people who look like us for. Um, it is very worrying that someone's British citizenship has been stripped of them and they've left them stateless. I mean, uh, Aisha, you had some reading that you'd done on this for some yeah. girls um, that were like back. I googled jihadis that had returned to Britain, and uh, I got through four pages of Google before I actually found the story that wasn't about Shamima. And um, I think that that's something we're going to get onto later. Why is she this one compared to actually there have been a lot of them? And I found a story from 2018 where 80 jihadi brides and children and their children were actually returned um, to Britain. And obviously, they did, and a lot of them didn't even go through de-radicalisation. Um, one, uh, uh, I assume she was a white convert. Uh, she was a daughter of a British paratrooper. I wonder whether that helped. Um, ended up in an East London council flat. And Shamima, who sadly has lost children, was a child when she went. I mean, the, the stories, and of course, lest we, you know, compare them to the Rochdale and the grooming gangs and things like that, you know, why has this become such a, a news point and such an issue that we've ended up in this situation when actually we had previously been letting people back in who were British citizens? And I wonder whether you guys have, you know, thoughts about how we got here from there. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, the, the, let's call that the previous position. And there's certainly been a change in policy regarding people who have been out to Syria um, you know, pre-2015 
or 2014 to those who've gone out post-2014. But even after Shamima's case, there's been a, a young Somali girl who was out there, similar circumstances. However, she, she lost an arm in, in conflict over there, and she's been repatriated back to the UK. There are a number of children as well who are orphaned, and thankfully at least the, this government um, chose not to apply the same principles as the Shamim Begum for, for orphaned children, and they've been repatriated too. But the more interesting one is actually Salman Abedi's brother, so the, the brother of the individual who blew up um, you know, the Manchester Arena um, uh, Ariana Grande concert. Now, this is a guy who was living in uh, Libya, uh, who was out there before the bombing and was involved in some parts of the operation of that bombing. Now, at the same sort of time that Shamima Begum is being stripped of citizenship, the UK government is spending treasure and effort to try and locate him and have him extradited from Libya back to the UK. Now, in any metric, a guy who's been involved in a t terrorism attack itself is going to be somewhat more dangerous than some young girl who's gone out there and uh, been basically having children, really, as far as the evidence shows. Um, and they brought him back to the UK. He faced a trial, even though he's not a UK citizen, um, uh, uh, in, in, a, in an open court uh, where evidence was put to him and a jury found him guilty. And he's now serving you know, a number of life sentences. So the juxtaposition is difficult to understand uh, why a young woman is stripped of citizenship and left out to rot, whereas a young, younger man who has been directly involved in, in, um, in a plot is given the exact opposite treatment. Do, do, do you think public opinion sways anything at all? Because she has become a figure of hate, really, hasn't she? It's like, if you even mention her name, it's like these people must have alerts on their phones. Like, every time you mention a name, within two seconds, they're right there. And it's the same with Abu Hamza. It's like they pick out villains, don't they? And we know that in the black community, they'll pick out certain people who they just vilify forever and ever. So why, why her? Why a kid? Why her? Well, I mean, with, with Abu Hamza, he's sort of, um, you know, he's got the look, you know. He's a stereotypical villain who's got one eye and hooks for hands. I mean, he's literally Peter Pan's nemesis, but with a beard, right, in bearded form. So uh, I, I can't imagine any journalist who would be able to resist the temptation for, you know, using him as a sort of James Bond villain. So I can I can see why that would be the case. In terms of Shamim Begum, I think she fell into a yard a unique situation in the middle her issue was uh, arose in the middle of a conservative party campaign where um where uh, you know w one of the candidates that being Sajid Javed really in his deluded mind thought he had a chance to become a leader of the conservative party and this was one hook he could use in order to try and push his particular um you know his particular um position with the mo with the right wing media forward and he took it yeah, also, it's very public, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's she, she was very not apologetic. She was very on TV. It's really easy for her to become a villain. Also, I think what would they actually charge her with is, is a question. Because they had things to charge her with. They'd want her to be here, right? So it does raise this point where, what do you charge her? You're just going to bring her in, you can't charge her. And so because it's so public, they just have to make a spectacle of her and they've just gone as far as they can. Well, in her particular case as well, the, the only evidence against her um, in terms of criminal charges, as far as we know, is that she, at the age of 15, decided to join a terrorist organization, which is a criminal offense. That, that is a criminal offense. However, at the time, we managed to um, garner from uh, Bernard Hoganhow, who was the chief of the uh, Metropolitan Police at the time, and Mark Rowley, who was head of counterterrorism, they gave a public statement in Parliament to say that these girls would be treated as victims unless there was further evidence of other criminality. Now, that's known as a legitimate expectation where a representation has been made. And so if she were to come back to the UK, no doubt she would be arrested. They may even try and charge her with membership of a terrorist organization. But we would then have this document to say, hold on, you've already made a representation about that and you can't now rely on, on, on without taking this into account, i.e. she couldn't be charged with that. So then you've got this ridiculous scenario as far as the UK government is concerned of this you know, icon uh, or iconoclast figure of Shamima Begum, who then potentially could return to the UK. And rather embarrassingly, she couldn't be arrested for anything, really. So I think that's their main worry, is how would they look if that 
once they've demonized her to that degree and the whole, uh, you know, shebang around her, the whole allegations that have been thrown without any evidence to back it will then fall apart and dissolve like salt in water. What, um, yeah. what does her age, what impact does her age have on the charge of joining a terrorist organization? Because obviously she's not even 18, she's not even 16, let alone 18 rather. So the age of criminal consent in the or criminal culpability in the UK is actually 10, really. So uh, a child can be tried um, for as an adult. However, because of her particular circumstance, she was still a child and she was under international law and domestic law trafficked. She travelled across, there was grooming involved, and therefore she could avail herself of a defence. Um, and that defence is as a trafficked person. Beyond that... The evidence is, is that within two weeks of being in ISIS-controlled territory, she was married to a 23-year-old man. This is a 15-year-old girl. Now, the 23-year-old was a, a Dutch national, and under both countries' laws, the UK law and Dutch law, that statutory rape. So she also remains within that, within the context of that sexual relationship throughout the entire currency of her stay in Syria. And so there's another provision of international law and UK law that states that where you're in, uh, in, an, in a sexually abusive relationship within the context of being uh, trafficked, then there is yet further defences you can have because you are um, a victim of that situation. Yeah, um, you mentioned before Sajid Javid. So a lot of people have said he was doing it to prove a point. He wanted to be Tory leader. There's a lot of strength of feeling about him. But so she has become somewhat of a political football. But taking that out, out, putting that aside, what about the public? Because they just don't seem to care. And it's like, oh, she's unapologetic. If I was sitting in an ISIS camp and somebody asked me what was going on, and I was a young girl and I'd and I'd lost children and stuff like that, I'd say it's great here. It's like Disneyland. They're lovely to me. I mean, they do it all the time when people are kidnapped. Do you know what I mean? It's like you have grown people. Okay, some of this I did see in films, yeah. But you do have grown people, like in the hijack films, and they film a little video of them, and they go, they're treating me very well. I'm having a great time. So why is there just this lack of sympathy, not even the politicians, from us as parents who have young kids, who, who uh, it, you know, it's the biggest fear. It's your biggest fear. Why could you not just sit there as a mum or a dad or a sibling or somebody? We all know teenage girls. We... We always have so much sympathy for teenagers and what they do and what they go for. Why is there a sympathy chip missing in respect of this girl? It's not just a slight. I mean, it's it's very violent. I think um, at the at the end of the day, there's always going to be a section of the public uh, which are odious, really, and very vocal. Um, and generally, that's why the Daily Mail exists to cater for them. Um, so, so what we are hearing is a very vocal segment of the public. But beyond that, there, you know, there are, the, I mean, we can see even within the Tory party, even within the cabinet, you've got dissenting opinions about what should have happened to Shamima Begum. Even Jacob Rees-Mogg is fervently of the opinion that she should be returned. We Even before the judgment on the Thursday, we have a number of senior Tory um, MPs who have written a letter in protest to say, actually, it's a greater security threat she's left out there. So there's great division even within the ranks of the Tory party, even within the cabinet, let alone in, in wider society. But I think one of, the, one of the issues that we have to recognise is that the UK has been subject to a number of ISIS-inspired terrorist attacks, often suicide, uh, suicidal in nature. And so when you have this great you know, atrocity and there is a denial of a trial and punishment because the person has killed himself in the process or being killed in the process, it leaves something of a moral debt, really, that that individual got away with it. They achieved their goal. And I guess when there's that much fervor, the first person who fits the bill just gets all the heat. It's like a lightning rod that, uh, that attracts unfairly and disproportionately all of that negative sentiment. And, you know, given the publicity that Shamima Begum had actually garnered around this issue, then she becomes the icon for that. But you should remember that in 2015, this was not the story when they left. This is the opposite of the story. Three girls had gone, um, traveled to ISIS-controlled territory, and the public were like, get our girls back. We need them back. You know, the, where we have Boko Haram going in with guns to steal children and girls in northern, um, northern Nigeria, the world's public says, get our girls back. 
But, you know, through twist of fate, Shamim has been converted from a victim into the icon of the, uh, of the, of the terrorist sort of jihadi oppressor to throw you off. I mean, look, there was even pictures of her in a, fight, in a shooting range in, in the UK used for target practice. Mm. I mean, you can't forget racism as well. I mean, let's just be honest. Like, you've had 20, well, at least 20 years now of lots of anti-Muslim sentiment. The idea that, you know, the way they, even going back to Cameron, the way they talk about parallel lives, they're separate people, they're not really British. There are a lot of people in this country who wouldn't think that she's really British. You actually think that her citizenship being revoked is perfectly fine, right? Unfortunately. And we see that all the time. We just had this conversation about the Twitter trolls. What do they always say? We're not really British, right? And so it kind of fits into that. The idea you could strip someone's citizenship um, and just because they have family somewhere else means that they're not they're foreign. I mean, that, that's deeply problematic and also deeply racist. So she, she's being treated as... First, unfortunately, many policymakers and large parts of the media have treated many black and brown people for the, at least the last 20 years, but it probably goes back a lot further than that. Well, the prime minister here has referred to people like her as, you know, bank robbers or letterboxers. You know, he, he defined people who wear that type of re- religious garb as that. This is a man who's quite happy to throw around racist uh, phrases like piccadilly, watermelon smiles. These are all things that that's been out of the lips and the and the typewriter of our own prime minister. So, in terms of the public, um, if we believe that human beings are led by example, well, he's the example that's been set at the moment. Yeah, it's really annoying with the far right because they try to make out they're the grown ups in this situation, and then you see Boris Johnson, like you said, piccadillys tank top bum boys like you stop talking like that when you're about 13 if you ever did do you know what I mean and it's just like seen as I, I do think I agree with you um Tasmin like we're going through this period that everything's got super super harsh in the last couple of years and I don't know if it's um we've spoken about it on the show a couple times before but it's like the anger that comes out when we want to speak about our rights or one is you know <clears throat> point out that we're humans as well like it's just everything that we're doing is seen as some kind of threat but like um kindly said it's deeply worrying for people like us like so because I'm thinking what does that mean if I do something my parents are from uh different places Thanks. how does it work do you know do I do they send me back to Dominica please god no Barbados I prefer Barbados if you're supporting me please but if like you know what I mean so do we get to choose which one we go to like you know what I mean and then what does that mean so that means I can live somewhere else I've got another country so are my kids even safe here citizenship wise when are they going to stop this is it going to be every single black and brown person for generations to come what's going on well, one of the big problems with this actual judgment is that it effectively says we have to trust our Home Secretary um, in that when when they make a decision that it's not really for the courts to try and undermine that. Now, if it was a different Home Secretary, maybe there's some merit to that particular position. But we currently have a Home Secretary. I would, I would argue against that. I would say that the, the whole point of law and judges is to create a separation between somebody who may well be politically motivated versus somebody who's motivated in terms of applying fairness and justice. Those are two very different propositions. But if we, for example, say just simply say, OK, well, let's have a look at what this Home Secretary has done. Do they stay within the law? Well, this is a Home Secretary who currently may well be prosecuted for being in contempt of court. Basically, at the moment, there are cases at the moment where she has simply ignored a court and ignored a court judgment with respect to um, Windrush victims. Windrush is an illegal, was an illegal movement where she has taken British citizens and illegally deported them, really. So this is a Home Secretary who has no regard for the law, is contemptuous for the law, let alone people's rights, before a, a court gets involved. And we are expected to really trust that type of character of person. I was going to bring in Windrush, but before exactly the character of the person, like there was an interview that was done, right? And they asked four Tory MPs, I um, can't remember who the first one was, but they asked these tor- tor- uh, four Tory MPs, 
what do you guys do to get yourself through lockdown? The first one said, oh, I watched box sets. I think Liz Trust said we were doing Brexit negotiations and then at the end we'd have beer and pizza. Rishi Sunak said, I had lemon, lemon drizzle cake every day at 4pm. She, Pretty Patel said, I used to get up six o'clock in the morning and go on dawn rage with the police, law and order. And I'm like, can no one see that she's not okay? I'm not even like trying to be funny. She's not okay. Like she's just, everything she says is so extreme and so nasty and so over the top. Like at what, I don't know. I don't know. Like, sorry, the chief civil servant, the head of the civil service resigned over how she was treating civil servants because he couldn't feel that he could protect them really. Remember there was a tweet from the civil service with, you know, rather interesting, which simply said, you know, imagine working with these truth twisters. We are we are in a serious trouble, really. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. She's very unapologetic and stuff. I don't know. I've heard she's like five two. Maybe it's a short person thing. <laughs> I kind of. <laughs> but isn't that the point of the law? Isn't the point of the law to protect you from crazy politicians? It's a shame that I've also. It's not, it's not a shame. It's not a coincidence that both of the Home Secretaries on this decision are Asian. I mean, and this is really one of those yeah. where identity politics actually works. This is how identity politics works. Where they get people and put them in these positions to make these deeply racist judgments. And there's no, there's just, there's just no coincidence about it. But surely the yeah. point of the law to say that you cannot be made stateless. She's been made stateless. The argument that because she can apply somewhere else literally makes all of us, all of and my kids, like you said, and my kids are now potentially we can be to have a citizenship. I, I can't understand the legal point of it. If that set, that legal precedent is set, that is horrendous for for us. Really, it really does actually delegitimise our status as British citizens. Yeah, are you sure you were going to say? A quick question for Tasneem. Actually, didn't something come up uh, during Brexit where there was a problem with uh, the law and the state and the Supreme Court? I can't remember what the actual finding was, but it was another situation like this where they it was something... Wasn't it when Parliament was prorogued? Yeah. It was another yeah. situation where there was a bit of a, a push and pull. And, um, uh, yeah, basically Parliament felt in the same way they've done here. They acted completely against the law. Yeah, no, just, the proroguing of Parliament was uh, was deemed as something that was uh, non-lawful, really. Yeah, so that's um, true. Oh, we have got plenty, plenty more. There's a, The Good Law Project is... Is uh, has currently got a judgment to say that the handing out of PPE contracts was entirely unlawful. Really, these are millions or you know, multiple millions of pounds being handed to the butcher, the baker, the candlestick baker, as long as they put two pound fifty into the uh, into the Conservative Party coffers beforehand. Right? I'm, you know, but in terms of regard, you know, contempt for law, law, this is this is, this government takes the biscuit. Yeah. I think that is it. It's contempt, isn't it, for people? And like with the Good Law Project, um, the guys called Jolien uh, begins with them. More he famously, the Fox Killer. Yes, the Fox In Killer. In a row, so the Camino. It's like it's almost like the government is almost laughing in our faces because you have Jacob Rees-Mogg getting up making a speech going oh about this man who kills foxes when you guys fought to keep fox hunting going throughout the pandemic so that all your friends and your donors would be happy. All of a sudden you care about a fox. It's just like almost like they're just doing this stuff in front of our face. But to take it back um, to Windrush, Candy, like that's been in the news as well because they're not even compensating people the way that they said they were going to. No, I mean, Windrush has just been, uh, well, you should, we shouldn't really be surprised because, again, I think both of these cases show you that we are still subjects. We're not, we are treated, to be honest, black and brown people are treated as subjects and not citizens. And this, the Windrush is the perfect example where people have the legal right, but then are deported, are treated bad. And even when it comes out, you still don't treat people properly. I mean, how have we not paid compensation? How have they not fixed it? So it just, show, it just shows you this government is definitely, in my lifetime, the most racist government we've had, even though it is the most diverse government we've had. Um, and that's not a coincidence. Uh, but yeah, it does show, both of these cases show you that, they, that we don't have full citizenship rights in this country. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've covered it quite a few times on this show because the stuff that just keeps coming up. I think in the second episode, we had John Barnes on and we were talking about black faces in high places and this sort of trend that is going on now to kind of shut us down, which brings me to something else. Um, there have been quite a few cries over the last few years about decolonizing curriculums, thinking that maybe if people studied properly, 
um, study, you know, British history properly and all the things that happened during empire. And, you know, they want less, they want more diverse voices in the books that they're giving students to read. And the kickback against that has been pretty harsh, isn't it? Yeah, unfortunately, because, I mean, actually, in both of these cases, if we actually had a proper understanding of what Britishness is, neither of them would be possible, right? Because, actually, my family was born in Jamaica, mostly. Um, I, I found my dad's first passport when he came to the country. He was six. He came in 1960, two years before Jamaica existed. It was a part of the British Empire. And it's a British passport. It just says Jamaica on the front, right? So, actually, Jamaica is actually English, part of the United Kingdom. Uh, where should we be begging from? To family Bangladeshi. Bangladeshi. Yeah, which again, part of the British Empire. So I always say, she, even if even if our family is part of the Empire too. So if we actually understood what Britain was, we understood that all of us have been in it, have been contributing to it, are part of it, are just as British in that sense as everyone else. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not, even though that's quite straightforward and it should be quite obvious and we should be something everybody wants to learn, it really isn't. There is this really narrow British Isles. Whiteness is still really key to what things which are taught um, because we don't want, I don't think a lot of people want to have the, the broad expanse. We kind of lighten the little England narrow mentality, unfortunately. Kianda, could I ask, were you looking for your father's passport around the time Peter Patel became the Home Secretary? <laughs> so thankfully, my dad did swear his, he actually did swear his uh, passport because we went, so if we went to America, you know, and if you, my dad was one of those people he was like, I'm never getting a British passport, never going to sort it out, and would definitely have been caught up in this scandal. But we went to America and had to get a passport. So I was all right. I, I, he, he retired. So that's why, that's why I, had his, I, was looking, I had his passport. But it's, 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 it's even with Windrush, it's not just Caribbean people in India, people in Asia, people in Africa. It's everybody. It's, 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 it's a much more widespread thing. Actually, one good thing about one good thing, like good thing, I guess the one positive that came out of it was instead of celebrating the kind of 70 years, Windrush, isn't it great, integration, et cetera, et cetera. It actually showed us what Britain really is, which that was at least an educational moment, I think. I think one, one of the issues we have in the UK is that the average reading age is 12 to 13 years old. So that that's, I mean, what I do when I want to speak publicly usually is I'll put my thoughts on paper and then I'll talk to my children. And if they don't understand it, I'm not saying it. So I'll rewrite it so that if they get it, then the public may get it. And it sounds contemptible. That is that is why the Daily Mail is the most widely read newspaper. It's because it's pitched to that level of thinking. Now, if you imagine what you know, most of us probably have our children, um, and if you've had a teenage child, we know what they're like. Really, it's you know they're, they're, you're, you're going to find you're going to find conflict and division even when you're not looking for it. And unfortunately, that's the nature of our politics now. When you've got effectively teenagers that are running running the roost, um, and you've you know, you've got Lord of the Flies going on, then this is the nature of the society we'll now have. And the governments, and it's one of the things the governments made. This government, in particular, has made a hundred percent clear they're not changing anything. Curriculum's not changing. They don't. They're defending racism in universities. This is there really is an attack on knowledge from this government. But didn't you talk at Cambridge the other day and you were attacked um, in the paper before it even happened? <laughs> oh, yeah, the uh, racial consequences of Mr. Churchill, which is just, it's, it's, a, like, it's a panel discussion. It's not a big deal. We have these at universities all the time. The Daily Mail read a story, the Times read a story, the oh read a story. It became this big thing. There's now been a report released today by the Policy Exchange, which is this right wing think tank. Uh, saying that we should have been vetted. Imagine this. I'm, just, I'm professor. <laughs> we got like three professors at universities. We're supposed to be vetted okay. before we talk at Cambridge College. It's, 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 I mean, it really is. Just shows you how much this cancel culture thing's a joke. It's about shutting down people like us. Well, what's quite funny is that whatever your views about, you know, Churchill, those are your views. But Churchill's grandson, Nicholas Soames, was kicked out of the Tory party by Boris Johnson. So if there's anyone showing disrespect to Churchill and his ilk, it's Boris Johnson. Good point. Yeah, I was shocked that people weren't more upset about that. They were like, you know, they were just like, okay, we're just going to go with it. But I think um, what you said, Tasmin, is really important because I know that um, I've seen um, Kaindi speaking and I know the thing that I always get all the time is like, oh, you stupid snob, who do you think you are? So I think dumbing down what you say is actually probably... Uh, you know, yeah, seriously, they get their backs up. They really get their backs up about an intelligent black and brown people, like Priya, um, Dr. Gopal um, from Cambridge. Oh my 
goodness, oh my goodness, like the stuff she has to put up with. And it's like very much, people talk about like working class racism and stuff like that. Um, you know, against working class people, like saying black people don't work, black people are lazy. But show them a black or brown person in a high position that is speaking out against, and that is like one of the most awful things that you can be. I mean, start with Meghan Markle, for goodness sake. She did, she did, all she did was get married. But I think the hate <laughs> against richer black and brown people, there's something we don't really tap into that much, like Raheem Sterling and um, Marcus Rashford. And uh, you know what I mean? It's just like, the anger comes from one minute it's like come here integrate we we can you can have so many opportunities here and when you have them and you use your talent and your brains or whatever they get mad at you for the for that well some of the easy the easiest response to that is somebody to say pick a metric i'm better than you so where's your white supremacy now really <laughs> I just, just wanted to ask um whether you guys think that the way that people have responded to uh, the talks at universities and Dr. Gopal, and it's whether it's calculated. Because if you were to, you know, speak to somebody off the cuff, they would just say this is just their feeling and they're defending free speech, which is the absolute irony, that total misunderstanding or misuse of language to say that this person shouldn't speak because of free speech. Like, I don't even know where you go with that. But do you think it's calculated? Do you think it's planned? Oh, 100%. I, I think that I think that um, the black and brown Tories are planned. I think them putting black and brown faces in high places is planned. I think the attack on the trans community by found, uh, funding people like the LGB Alliance by splitting lesbian, gay, bisexual away from transgender people so you can attack the, the weaker one. Eventually, they're going to come and start picking it all apart, I, I think. I don't know if you guys agree with me. Kind of sorry, you were going to say something. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's it's completely planned. This whole yeah, you even got a term for it. Uh, what is it? Cancel culture or this nonsense? Like the culture wars. It's a it's a purposeful attempt to shut down a particular kind of speech and to delegitimize a particular kind of speech. Because what's happened really is if you think about. So I, I work in universities. I'm one of 140 black professors in the UK. So that's 0.68 percent of. It's terrible. Like it's really bad. Believe me, but. 20 years ago, it was even worse, right? 50 years ago, there's not, there's nobody. The universities have been places for just white men, basically rich white men for centuries. And what's happened now is there's a few of us in there, poor people, women, there's um, uh, trans activists, there's, there's black people right in there, and they, they feel really uncomfortable. Like, re they really are, they, and, that, and that's why they feel their speech has been curtailed. And if you think about social media and the, the boom of like different television stuff, there's just loads more spaces where you can hear us speak now. And that really does genuinely on a deep level that they're terrified when we say anything because it's, it has really threatened them. And so that's why there's this massive pushback to shut us off because they, they just want us to be quiet. That's, that's how white supremacy works. But also in the Tory party themselves, they've identified universities and seats of learning as being left leaning in, 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 in general terms. So they, you know, whilst they have an 80 seat majority and whilst they're sitting at the, uh, at the reins, they know that their constituents, the people who are voting for them, are, uh, you know, they're pensioners, really. They're about to plop off. So give it another 10 years and they'll lose them to actually, you know, funerals, really. Um, whereas in terms of the younger generation, those who are those who are coming through the universities, well, they've tended, to, they've shown their, which way they're leading because they voted massively for Jeremy Corbyn, who is a, was a very socialist leader. So we see this, this, this division between old and young. And I guess the Tories are now quite worried that within the next 10 to 20 years, they're going to, they're going to lose the argument completely and the demographic completely. So they need to create little Tories, you know, little Jacob Rees Moggs out there. Um, who are going to, you know, spread the message and get 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 young younger people to to vote for them? And the first thing they'll have to do is sh is shut down the universities in terms of their their thinking on the left leaning aspect. And it's irony is that universities are the least left wing places ever. I, like, I, I know. Like twenty years, terrible right wing conservative places. This idea they're left wing, I don't know where that came from. That is completely nonsense uh, but it is all this myth making to, to, to really is myth making to cause these divisions to shut speech down and you're right to, to get new voters right and it works and unfortunately it works just to have an 80 seat majority for this awful government so it's clearly a strategy to play enough yeah like you said there's quite a few horrible young people as well you know what i mean <laughs> it's always been a young conservative group there's always like 
groups of people. You've got people, Darren Grimes isn't very young. Who's the other one? Harwood, Tom Harwood isn't, isn't young. Do you know what I mean? They've got people from different communities and stuff. And it's not just universities. They've gone for it. They've also gone for the arts. Because, like, if you go and do a show, like, when this new director general, and wasn't he running to be a Tory MP at one point, um, when he came in, he was like, get rid of those left-wing comedians off the BBC. First of all, someone who's been on those shows, these people are not left-wing. They're centrist at best. They are not as left-wing as people think. Just because you say, Boris has got shit hair, it doesn't mean you're left-wing. <laughs> you know what I mean? But that's how they're taking it. It's like... And then they, they, they now want you to have, like, social media poli uh, policies that you sign so that you can't get to your fans. If, you, if they see you on TV and then they come and look you up on social media, they don't want you to see, you know, vote Jeremy Corbyn or anything like that. Like, Gary Lineker was one that was famously... They really targeted and he used to speak out about the treatment of refugees and stuff like that and they now made him sign something to stop him doing that kind of thing um yeah i think it's, it's a this is systematic attack across the board it seems to be like me with every com minority community the arts really? do you know what i mean it's, it's BBC? terrible how can you say the BBC is left wing? Gee, the BBC is awful. BBC is terrible. It's like state media and they're attacking that. So that's how you know it's not. Eva, can I ask you as a comedian, what does a right wing comedy look like? They're just really bad. I mean, you've got the famous one like Andrew Doyle. They're just, it's not my kind of thing. But like I always say, when people hate my stuff, comedy is subjective. So, but if I go to a comedy club and you've got a comedian on, on you know, I remember once I got into really big trouble at Jonglers because I just took the audience with me. I was like, what is this? Come on, like, it's gay pride today. I was like, who's coming? And they went, yeah, we'll come, we'll come. Like, you had this, so right-wing comedy, to me, they'll, they'll go up on stage, you know, just be offensive to everyone, and they'll say, hey, what's up with these transgenders, man? <laughs> I guess I can identify as a beer bottle. <laughs> I'm a right lad. <laughs> and you're like, do you know what I mean? And it's just like, oh, yeah, what's with those gays man they love pink <laughs> like Barbie <laughs> and it's like oh women are evil it's just like a load of guys mainly who are on stage who just don't have many orgasms that's left-wing comedy to me I mean right-wing comedy that's just what it yeah, is it's, with other people in the room you mean well exactly it's just like but this is what I'm saying it's like this infantile kind of way of talking like like Boris like, there are people out there who think what Boris is like, oh, my God, letterboxes. Oh, come with something else. Letterboxes, ninjas. It's just like racism condensed with a laughter track, really. It's, it's just like these the, people uh, say things we've heard it before. We've heard all this stuff funny. before. Else. The, OJ, the huh? OJ Simpson joke was funny. The OJ Simpson joke was funny with the glove. You see that on the... Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. I like that. I actually, I'm, I give Boris Johnson credit. I did, I did appreciate the OJ reference well, one time no, I, mean, it, I don't know i don't know it could have been seen as trivializing a really violent horrible I, I murder mean, woman. i just i'm not going there i'm just not going there i cannot even afford to because like people don't realize like a mock the week someone was talking to me about it the other day up to date i got so much hate mail because another male comedian made a joke about domestic violence that i didn't laugh but they had a cutaway and they showed me cracking up laughing. And I just got hate mail and I was trying to explain, I did not do that. It's just, I know comedy should be one. The thing is, that's annoying. It's like everywhere else. The right wing comedians get upset and go, oh no, you know, it's cancel culture. People don't want to see me. It's the woke brigade. There's a reason people don't want to see you. And it's nothing to do with the woke brigade. People just don't want to see that. It's just like, you know, I don't know. Shit. <laughs> yeah bernard manning was never funny so I don't, I don't, I, oh god and, and it's also bernard manning like taking that as you know as an example i know like mixed race people who had a sort of who look you can't tell if they're mixed black or asian or you know they said that around the time that that comedy club was coming out you had better get off the street run home like be a lot of you because he would say bash a pee on your way home you know what I mean? And people would be literally attacked in the streets. And that's why I don't really buy the argument about, um, you know, when it comes to comedy, you can say whatever you like. I do think you have got a responsibility and I do think that you can be called in. And I would always um, 
anytime I did I do material about Muslim community or something like that, they're not the victim. It's the stupidness of everybody around them that's the victim. You know, it's the whole punching up and not punching down thing that I think is really important when it comes to comedy. But um, I think I think a lot of black people more black people than we knew were shocked like at Windrush and you've got that case now is his name Osimi Brown yeah I mean that doesn't even make sense about the autistic boy it's really really tragic and I think a lot of black people have had a wake-up call but Tasmin would you say like the Muslim Muslim community I know there's black Muslims as well there's both um but do you think like the Muslim community was more aware than we were simply because of the war on terror? You guys, have... I, I, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so. I think um, you see a, a lot of the Muslim community came, you know, just after the Windrush sort of um, the original Windrush sort of ships came in um, in the sixties and seventies, and they very much had the idea that they're going to stay in the UK for a while and then they're going to go back home. So they adopted the idea of let's just isolate ourselves get on with work, send money home, and then we've gone in due course. So then, of course, they got to the age where diabetes became an issue and back home doesn't actually have an NHS. So they, they, they end up sort of staying and they've got kids and what have you. But the, the problem is, is that mentality stayed the same, which is isolate and just concentrate on what you're doing, nothing else. Don't rock the boat, don't speak about anything, don't, you know, don't put your head above the parapet. Now, certainly, um, and, and the problem is, is that a lot of the institutions that we have are run by people who still have that view. Um, you know, maybe COVID's got some benefits to it, um, in that that's the demographic that at least we can, they can open some spaces up there um, and get some fresh thinking coming in. And the younger generation are worried about that. But the older generation, the majority, they simply did not see that. They just thought, you know what, we're not involved in anything like that. It won't happen to us. The problem is the definition of terrorism has opened up so widely that, you know, if you, you, you buy a book, you, there, are, there are cases of students who are studying terrorism studies, getting arrested for, for reading a book. Um, and so I think, I think people in their 30s now are in a position to actually be attuned to this. But the, unfortunately, the rest of the community was somewhat, you know, ostrichy, head in the sand. It doesn't affect us. Do you think it's, they, you say they isolated themselves. I know, like, a lot in the Caribbean community, when we came, we didn't have any choice but to isolate ourselves because we weren't allowed in. You know, we weren't allowed to rent stuff. It was famous, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. Yeah. We had to have our own churches because we weren't allowed in their churches. We had to have our own thing. Do you think... That, so you're saying, like, you're saying in the Muslim community or Asian community in general, you think it was a choice? Oh, no, that was a choice. I mean, there are, um, you, you know, we, the Asian community didn't have it as bad uh, in, in the South anyway as communities that have come before. Um, and there are really strong examples of Asian communities who have done very, very well in, in, in the body politic. So particularly the Ugandans who came over through expulsion from Idi Amin, they've been very successful and they've engaged with the, the political sort of discourse. And the reality is, is that it comes with money, really. Your representation is in your numbers if you're organized or if you're able to pay and understand how to pay lobby groups to get your point across. Um, and that's why we see, you know, the pretty patels of the world in certain positions. Uh, some of them actually wield power. Others are there just as a sort of Uncle Tom, you know, uh, scenario to, to get a brown person to do something horrible to other brown people, really. Uh, but, but different communities have had different successes. And one of the main problems is if you're not aware of it and you're not thinking about it, you're not doing it. And so if you're not engaging with government, you're not in, like, there are like 4 million Muslims in the UK, you know, um, why aren't politicians running after them whenever it's voting time? They're not, because they know they're divided. They know they, they're siloed. They know that they are of, uh, a lot of them are of, of a particular sort of blue collar bent, and therefore they're going to vote Labour. And Labour assume they're going to vote Labour anyway. And the Tories think, well, they're going to vote Labour anyway. So what's the point of um, engaging with them? Yeah, we had um, Ash Shikar on a couple episodes as well, and she was telling us about the difference and how um, after the war on terror and stuff, like certain parts of the Asian community were pushed to the side. And you have the model minority, don't you? Which yeah. is sort of 
people see, they always have to have a model minority. And so you would see like the Ugandan Indians and stuff doing really, really well for themselves. And other Indian people becoming like, you know, our opticians and our doctors and our, you know, very, very respected people within the community. So Aisha, did you want to say something? Well, I was just going to tie into what uh, Tasneem was saying there with them. Well, they're just going to vote Labour. I think it'd be very interesting uh, to see what happens at the next general election or any local elections, actually, because uh, Labour's upset a lot of people who aren't white. And it's not just um, the South Asian community, but the black community. Good Lord. He has really, 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 really upset people. And I think the numbers will show it. There's no point trying to outright Boris. Yeah, I see a lot of that when you get into arguments and there is that whole thing. If you as a black or brown person are trying to say to Labour, hold on a second. I know a lot of people are upset about the Kashmir comments. Oh, well, that's none of our business. Um, a lot of people are very upset about the what Labour seems to be implementing a hierarchy of racism and stuff. But if you say anything, they go, who are you going to vote for then? Look what we've done for you. Like there is just like you know, almost just shut up, idiot. Like, what, are you going to go to the Tories? And what we are seeing is a lot of black and brown people are going to the Tories. So, I mean, do you think we have any... I've given up on politics and, you know, I used to be very involved um, at one point, but I'm just not interested in having anything to do with the Keir Starmer Labour. I love you, Auntie Diane. Dawn, I love... If I lived in your constituencies, I would vote for you. But for the next one, I'm not going out to do anything. I'm not helping. I'm not I'm not doorstepping. I'm, you know, I'm not doing anything. I'm not interested. So what do you think politically we are... It's difficult because, I mean, it's difficult because, yeah, look, there's a the two-party system. Both parties let you down. What do you do, right? And you go to the Tories is like the worst possible thing you could do. But we are going... You are seeing more people go over there. And one of the things actually about the Windrush thing, which was good for us, was it actually started talking about immigration again. Because let's be honest, we haven't talked about immigration as a community for a long time. And we kind of have been British now and, you know, it's not our issue. And if you think about something like the migrant crisis in the Mediterranean, that's black people. That is predominantly Africans coming across uh, the ocean and nobody's, we're not talking about it. So it's good that we started to bring in the immigration discussion again. But that is an area where you can see there is this kind of Britishness, which some of us are falling for, right? That kind of we're British too. We, should, we shouldn't want this immigration. Isn't it great? We can have Commonwealth, et cetera. So there is a danger that people will go to, to the Tories. What we really need to be thinking about is independent political power. Like you can't support, Labour's not gonna do it. Like So, but there is a, if you look at the inner cities of all, all the cities, add up all of those votes in the inner cities, that's the number of seats. And we have to start being more politically mature. We say, actually, that's like, what, at least 30, 40 seats. Hong Parliament's to the way forward. Why are we, why are we, why are we sticking with these two parties? There's other ways to go. And that yeah. would be my say, look, inner city, look, just, just take the inner cities, we'll get a number of seats. And then you can actually really be pushing a different political agenda. But yeah, you can't, Labour, unfortunately, ain't much better than the Tories. Right? Well, look, as you say, at the end of the day, we have, we have the choice between Boris Johnson or in Keir Starmer, we have Boris Johnson who found a comb really. Um, <laughs> so if, if we're going to have to suffer anyway, we might as well say, well, we'll let the Tories carry on and you can negotiate your deal with us, Keir, when you bugger off and uh, actually do a deal with us. Um, so, yeah, we'll take the next one. We'll take the hit on another Tory government, basically. But if you, you, you want to show some difference, why should we vote for you? We'd rather have people who are honest, uh, honest in their racism, honest in their in their sort of oppression and say, well, this is the deal for you and we'll, and you're going to suffer anyway. Then someone who's going to two-time us and say, well, we're pretending to, to, to stick up for your rights, but actually not, actually not at all. I agree with that. That's what I say. So while we're sort of outside the system, um, what do you think, I mean, how do you find it? Because you've done work with Cage, haven't you, beforehand? Um, yeah. You've done sort of, do you... Do you think law is the like us getting to be more as well as politically savvy, legally savvy? You know, going in. How is it for you representing cases like this or being a party to cases like this? How are you treated well? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think it's it's always worth looking at what's the profession of the prime minister, right? So, when we were looking in the nineties, we saw that our prime ministers tended to be legally qualified. That was where the power was, right? In law. We had Tony Blair sitting there making his regulations, doing illegal things. But there was power in law, which there always sort of will be 
to a degree because it's about regulation. But we now see governments that couldn't care less about the international commitments. They couldn't care less about the domestic law. And they're quite happy to... Lo- I mean, look, we, we, we have the most powerful man in the country, who was Dominic Cummings, talking about testing his eyesight by whilst breaking the law on Barnard Castle. This is like contempt for the law is there. And so what's the nature of the politicians that we have now? We have Pretty Patel, who's a PR consultant. You know, you have Boris Johnson, who was in media, really, in journalism. So really the power has somewhat shifted to those sort of arenas. And, um, and I think, you know, we, we need to think about that. We need to think in our communities, how do, you, how do we frame things in terms of PR? Can we hit the bottom line? And as we're, as we're sitting there, we, we sort of need to communicate with our perceived home countries. We need to say to the leaders of our home countries, look, the Brits are coming again. This time they left their guns over fair play. Um, but they're coming for a trade deal. Now, if you want to trade with them, what about us? Yeah, they're calling us part of you. You should start asking questions in your trade deals about how they're treating people that originate from those home countries. That's where it's going to work, in, in those agreements. Yeah, totally agree. I totally agree. So, uh, we, we all, before we go, just... I don't know. Are you guys speaking to your kids about this stuff that's happened? I mean, I've got a 21-year-old and I've also got a four-year-old, so their understanding of stuff is very, very different. Um, We had, like, my four-year-old did pick up quite a lot about Black Lives Matter, just from stuff she had in the background. Obviously, you have to be age-appropriate. But are you... I try to keep her as innocent as long as I can. Um, She was actually quite... She went to nursery and she refused to use a white bowl. And said, we, we, "I'm not allowed to use that because me and my mum are black, and we don't use white things." I went, "I never said any of that. None." I went to. I swear to God, please don't call anyone. Please don't call prevent. I never said. It, I never said it. Um, so it's just quite funny. But are we? Like, what do we tell our kids? Because I mean, we had Small Axe that was on. Um, that was a hard watch. I, I didn't make it to the last one. Um, they were good but i had to do the mangrove nine in about five sittings because mm. it was really painful to me very very triggering to to go yeah. back to that kind of 80 like you know do you think do you think things have changed significantly or do you just think the way i did like before we go what's your you know, <laughs> where, we, where do we go i mean they did they're different they look different they're a bit different like i wouldn't be a professor Thirty years ago, so that's that's different. But does that mean I don't get treated with racism every day I go to work? Though, does that mean that it's better for all of or most of us? No. Just look at the statistics. I'll tell you, it's basically very similar to what it was previously. I mean, you got a teacher. My kids are young. Like, I got a twelve-year-old, a twelve-year-old daughter, and then three sons. Eight. I have to, I have to remember the ages. Eight, five, and three. And the five-year-old had a nightmare the other day. Uh, Boris Johnson was trying to kill him. So obviously I taught him well. I think I, I think I've got into his into his into his brain like that's the enemy. You know that, you know that, but definitely. But they all they have to teach him from them. And I think that's actually one of the things that we should learn from our own history. And Small X was good at that. Is that the British Black Power movement was prim- predominantly about education, like it was Saturday schools, it was bookshops, it was yeah, events and stuff like that. It was in Marcus Garvey Nursery that we had um, in Birmingham, and we all like we have to teach our kids. And that's what politics is as well. Politics isn't just like laboratory or that politics is organization it's community building and that's where we have to go back to because you can't rely on the government right and that's mm-hmm. what i teach my kids all the time you cannot rely on the government we've got to be building our own things and so one of the projects we're doing at the minute is we have the rambi organization of black unity in birmingham and we're reopening the garvey education center uh, which was the old marcus garvey nursery where it's going to be a place where you can just have this political education bring people together and that's what we've got to start to start relying on the state like it is time for us to rely and go back to yeah. that roots of self-help. Um, Malcolm X did tell us a long time ago. Yeah, it's the only way you're going to get this. You know, your enemy, educate your kids. But we'll finish with you, um, Tasneem. Uh, what do you think, as a brown Muslim man, do you feel depressed at the state of things? Do you think you have a future here Do you th- going forward? How are you feeling? Well, look, uh, um, 25% of the world's resources used to flow through Western finance systems until sort of China came along and went online. Now they've lost that. That's gone. It's rebalanced the East, really. So, you know, I look at my parents and other people of their generation, and they came to this country for economic reasons. Now, very soon, this country is going to be, you know, the sixth man of the world, let alone Europe, given all, all of the conditions that exist. Why would I stay here? Why, why would I want to suffer that, really? They've got no money. 
they've got crap weather, the food that they enjoy is actually mine. Um, and, I'm <laughs> and, um, and if I was to tell my kids, as my responsibility is, where's the best place for you to be? Well, it's, you know, the continent of Africa is going to have two billion more people in it soon. Looking at the politics across various countries in Africa, you see a resurgence of people asserting their national um, uh, their national pride by trying to decouple from the, 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 the parasitic financial institutions of France and, uh, and the UK, right? The, you know, and they're given a choice now. China is a choice. Not the best choice, but it's a choice. So, you know, I, I would say to my kids, and I will, and I do say to my kids, look around the world because this isn't the only place you have to be. You know, we've got other passports. The people who live here and want to keep it their country, they've got one. Good luck to them. Yeah, and that's a lovely way to end it. Um, guys, thank you so much for joining us this time as well. It's, um, yeah, really appreciate it. It was a really, really great conversation. So I'm going to stop recording now. Can you guys just stay in a second just so I can say proper bye? All right, I'll say bye to our audience. Thank you for watching. And next week, you'll see me with different hair. Maybe. <laughs> bye-bye. I say bye-bye-bye. Bye-bye-bye.